in January of 1999, I was working in Puerto Rico near the southern coast. I was there with another worker from our station in Iowa, and I was working for My Kitchen Seeds. The days in Puerto Rico are very long. You start before dawn, and you work until the late in the afternoon. And seed corn companies send people like me to Puerto Rico to continue the work we were doing in the summer during the winter. One day, we decided to go to a nearby beach. Now, to be honest, I'm not a very good swimmer. I took lessons in middle school where my instructor's name was Mr. Lee. Once, he had to rescue me out of the deep end while I was doing a skills test. And, and while I flailed and gasped for air, he walked casually to the other end of the pool, grabbed a very long stick, or pole, I should say, with a hook on it, came back, plucked me out, and deposited me on the side of the pool. And there I was, exhausted and embarrassed, but he gave me some advice. He said, Johnson? He said, don't worry. He says, even after you drowned, the top of your head will bob to the soft surface of the water. <laughs> yeah, teacher of the year was that guy. <laughs> the beach in Puerto Rico was very well used. The trash cans were full. There was graffiti on all the bathhouses. The beach itself was a narrow strip of sand, and the sand was very coarse. The kind of sand you would use if you were making concrete, not beach sand. So it was a rough place all the way around. But it was a great opportunity to wash off the day's dust, pollen, and sweat. I walked into the waves, and the water was warm. And I kept walking deeper into the water. What I didn't realize was that the bottom dropped off, just beyond where the waves broke on the shore. Well, when the water got up to my waist, I dove in, and I was swimming for a while with the water around my shoulders, and I was, I was enjoying it. It felt great. But then I decided to swim towards shore. And when I did, the waves lifted me up and pushed me further away. I was caught in a riptide. Every time I tried to swim towards shore, they would pick, the waves would pick me up and push me further out to sea. I was in water over my head. I was in water and treading water, and the water was splashing into my mouth as I was trying to, to stay afloat. And it was getting bad because my muscles were starting to burn from a long day in the field, and it's all that swimming. I didn't think I was going to make it. They say that when you think you're going to die, you think your life passes before your eyes. But for me, it was the things I was going to miss. I would miss my family my kids, and my wife. And I've always been in control of my life, the successes and the failures. If I succeeded or if I failed, it was on me. And I could always recover from my failures. But this one was different, and it was lethal. I was stuck in a riptide, and I couldn't get out. So I did something I never, ever do. I spit out the water, and I screamed for help. But there was no Mr. Lee with a long pole in Puerto Rico. But there was Mitch Barlow. Mitch Barlow came from another station in Iowa to Puerto Rico, and he had come to the beach with us that day. And the best description of Mitch is that he's a block of a man. And waves have a tough time moving Mitch anywhere. And so as he waded out into the water, he grabbed my arm, 
And he pulled me in and deposited me on, this, on this, the sand, and there I was in an exhausted heap. He had saved my life. But again, there I was, exhausted, gasping for air and embarrassed next to a body of water, just like eighth grade. So, but after I, after I nearly drowned in the Caribbean Sea, I kept asking myself the same question. What was I doing with my life? What was I doing with my life? I thought about my grandfather, Keith Monroe Lyons. Pop is what we called him. And the best description of Pop was he was five foot nothing. And he had, my dad used to joke that he had to stuff handkerchiefs in his back pockets to keep his pants from falling down. <laughs> but he was a legend in our family. He was a man who was generous and grateful at all times, even when most of us in his shoes would have been resentful and bitter from all his life experiences. As a kid, Pop was my hero, and he still is to this day, and I had promised to be like him, but I had forgotten my promise. But with my second chance at life, I, pro I promised to keep his legacy alive by doing a mission, and a mission that became an obsession, and the obsession became what a part, big part of me. My mission was fairly simple. I just wanted to feed the world. <laughs> but, and as an agronomist, that's the tagline. That's how they get you in the door. They say, agronomy feeds the world. And you go, oh, great. Um, but, it's, it, <laughs> but, but it's not quite that simple, because even hundreds of years ago, a guy by the name of Malthus came up with this postulate. Uh, he postulated that the, rap, the rate of growth of population of people Agriculture couldn't keep up. Agriculture needs to find better plants and better ways of growing them. And that was going to be my, my energy that I would put, go forward with. Uh, I would do agricultural research with the hope of keeping even with that population growth. So, in 1995, I came back to the Midwest from New York State to continue my education at Iowa State. Two years later, I was working in corn research, doing corn breeding. And two years after that, I had my wake-up call in Puerto Rico. But I couldn't pursue my obsession because I had a family to raise and I had to work. And family always, always comes first. The seed industry was going through its own upheaval. Chemical companies with large checkbooks were buying seed companies and they were combining companies and they were laying people off. So jobs for guys like me were getting hard to come by. But my obsession was like smoke from a fire that never goes out, so it was always around. In 2005, after a series of jobs that were neither satisfying or, or secure, I got a job with DuPont Pioneer. It paid well, and it had some of the best researchers around. They had nearly 40% of the market share for seed corn sales, which meant they were doing really well. And it was the dawn of transgenes, GMOs, so, and I was going to work in regulatory science, so I had a very secure job. So I also took a step back, and I decided to rather the whole world, I would concentrate on the state of Iowa and, its hungry, and people who are hungry in Iowa. So I started volunteering at the Food Bank of Iowa. And I started a small vineyard in Redfield with the help of friends and family. We planted 600 vines in, in, one, in one acre, and 10% of the harvest would go to the food bank along with 100 bucks. The best year we ever had was two tons, but every fall, 
there was a check going from the vineyard to the food bank. But that wasn't enough. That was just giving when giving was convenient. I, I call it armchair philanthropy. <laughs> I could do more. So at work, I discovered that if you make giving fun and easy, people can be very generous. So I started something called Toast and Jelly Mornings. And if you can imagine the aroma of toast wafting over cubicle walls, <laughs> that got people to stand up and go into the break room where they had breads to toast and jellies to try. And they really were generous after that. I came up with Pie Day, March 14th, which is a play on the value of Pie 314 and the symbol. <laughs> And science people love that kind of stuff. They just love it. <laughs> we had tailgating parties for the Iowa-Iowa State game. We had chili cook-offs. We had Halloween parties, anything for a food drive. I was finally finding my rhythm. I was finally starting to make a difference. Then something else happened when I was a pioneer. The arrival of Timothy James Riley, my grandson. So I started focusing on the needs of children, and I got involved with the Backpack Buddies program at the food bank. And Backpack Buddies send food home on Fridays so kids have food to eat over the weekend. And I made a promise that my grandkids would never go hungry, and I made another promise that I would work hard that no kid went hungry. In 2016, I was laid off by Pioneer. But I spent four years working for a startup called Power Pollen, and I volunteered on my own time at the food bank and at Meals from the Heartland. And then after 30 years of doing agricultural work, I decided I had enough and I retired. But there is one moment in my career that will never, never leave me. I was in Mexico doing work for the company, and I had just driven past and I was driving past a field of wheat that had just been harvested. And standing in that field were families, kids included, and they were sifting through the chaff that comes out of the back end of a combine. They were looking for wheat kernels. They, that was the greatest demonstration of the desperation of hunger I had ever seen in my life. They had one purpose. That purpose was to feed themselves and their families now, the companies I've worked for, they have several purposes, but feeding people is behind making money for their stockholders while selling something that should be a human right, which is food. And that's not my idea. That's Norman Borlaug. So now I am retired for good. I grow zinnias and marigolds and no corn. <laughs> I, on Mondays, I do food rescues where I go and pick up food that might have otherwise been just uh, tossed out and take it to places where people eat. On Tuesdays, I go volunteer at the food bank with a group of very determined retirees. Don't get in, don't get in front of those gray-haired people. <laughs> <laughs> On Wednesdays, I get to go to the schools and drop off the cases of backpack buddy sacks. And then I go to the DMARC pantry and help out on Army Post Road. Thursdays, I often go to often go to Meals from the Heartland and do Packmaster duties. And on Fridays, that's the best day. I get to play with my grandson, Griffin, and boy, do we raise hell. <laughs> <laughs> now, my obsession is alive and well, and it is fed by facts. 
not just my emotion. The fact that food insecurity is a product of poverty. The fact that the Food Bank of Iowa and its partners, over 55 counties, have set records month after month after month of the number of people that they assist and families that they assist. That 10% of Iowans are food insecure. And that blows my mind because we have more pigs than we do people in this state. <laughs> and, it just, and a third of the people who are inse food insecure are kids. Now, not every obsession is like a Calvin Klein commercial. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> my, my obsession is more like those horrible moments in Puerto Rico when I was pushing against a relentless force which is food insecurity. But now there is no Mr. Lee, there is no Mitch Barlow to the rescue, it's just me doing my very best to get food to the next person who needs it. Thank you. <laughs>